0: 2 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed... These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness and seven others If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so... Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord but these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand they are like unreasoning animals creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed and like animals they too will perish they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight they are blots and blemishes revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you, with eyes full of adultery they never stop singing, sinning they seduce the unstable, they are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beza, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray for God's help. Our Father, as we work our way through uh, some challenging things that you say to us, would you deepen our conviction that everything you say, you say because we need to hear it. And our Father, we pray that we would heed the warning that we need to be on our guard against false teaching. We ask this, that we might be firmly established that we might keep faithful till the end and that we might not be those who fall away. Amen. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Heresy. False teachers defending true doctrine. I wonder what images come into your mind when you hear those terms, the Spanish Inquisition maybe, intolerant times when dogma was rigorously imposed on everybody and any independent thought was feared and crushed. Now we're a culture that celebrates independence of thought. We love the iconoclast, the maverick, the Steve Jobs figure who who thinks for themselves and turns away from what everybody else does. And the truth is that we're very suspicious of religious truth and appeals to religious truth. We think that it's a power game. It's really actually about controlling other people. And so we come to a passage like this today, and all of our cultural biases kick in. And for many of us, we're pretty resistant to what we heard. It can feel harsh and narrow-minded and arrogant to even read these words. And then I guess uh, many of the, the rest of us, we just never really thought about this, and we think, this... It just doesn't sound particularly relevant to me, and we're tempted to switch off. But actually, when you think about it, there are lots of areas of life in which we recognize that ensuring that people adhere to accepted truth really matters, really matters. Imagine you go to the doctor and they've run some tests, something's not quite right. And you go to, to, to see the, the results of the test and the, and the doctor says, well, look, medical group think says you should take this particular medicine and you'll be all right. You're pretty seriously ill, but they say you've got to take this medicine. Thankfully, I've broken free from their repressive, regressive dogmas. I've learned to think for myself, and so what I'm going to prescribe you is a large dose of morphine morning, noon, and night. I take it, and I feel fantastic. Now, at that point, we don't celebrate their independence of thought. We report them to the GMC and hope that they get closed down before someone is killed. Ah, but that's science. Science is different from religion. In religion, my opinion is every bit as valid as yours Actually, Christianity is not religion like that. It doesn't work like that because Christianity is grounded in historical events. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's grounded in, in words that Jesus actually spoke, teaching specific things, predicting specific events. And at that point, when you've got historical events and real words that somebody spoke, there is such a thing as truth. And my opinion is only really valid if it matches the reality, the truth. And truth in terms of religion, truth in matters of Christianity, it really matters because how we think and how we live day to day is determined by what we believe. How you think and how you live is driven by what you believe. And we live in a world where there's truth and lies coexisting. And so we need to work out the difference between them. Now the context, the specific context of this passage, if you've been with us the last few weeks, is that Peter has been teaching that we know for certain the Lord Jesus will return. And we know it for a couple of reasons. One, he's saying we saw his glory, his divine glory with which he'll return. We saw it with our own eyes, Peter and the other apostles, while Jesus was on earth. And secondly, he says, look, the prophecies that have recorded, been recorded in Scripture, which tell that Jesus is going to return, well, the prophecies in, in the Bible have proved 100% reliable. 100% reliable. Everything the Bible has promised has come true. And so when it promises Jesus will return, we know that too will come true. But... He now warns us that although the prophecies recorded in the Old Testament are absolutely reliable, there were also people prophesying false things that didn't get included in the Bible. So chapter two, verse one, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Look, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament times, he says, there will be false teachers among you today. And that's Peter's big point, really, in this chapter. Very simply, There are false teachers, they are a real danger, so be on your guard. There are false teachers, they are a real danger to you, so be on your guard. That's what he's going to show us. Now, as Scott explained from uh, chapter one last week, the particular context is that supposedly Christian leaders are giving talks and writing books and blogs saying, Jesus isn't really coming back. This is just a myth that Christians have invented. But in chapter two, he as he says, look, these, these guys are teaching falsehood, he, he, he goes more generally into an understanding of false teaching. And he helps us to be protected, not just from those who will say Jesus isn't coming back, but from all the different kind of things that false teachers will tell us. Let's look at the detail then together. You've got, a, you've got an outline on your sheets. Um, we'll see that the first three verses, they really t- give the central teaching, and then the rest of the chapter illustrates it. And we'll spend uh, spend almost half the time in the first three verses. And then we'll, we'll run pretty quickly through the rest. And the first three verses, they tell us, there will always be false teachers. Many will be led astray. And the consequences will be devastating. Firstly, there will always be false teachers amongst you. Verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. There will be false teachers among you, not might be, but will be. And these false teachers will teach serious errors, destructive heresies. So there will be false teachers always in every era of the church, in every area of the church, there will be false teachers and they'll teach serious errors. Now, not every disagreement is a heresy. Heresies involve denial of the clear teaching at the heart of the Christian faith. That's what a heresy is really. It's a denial of the clear teaching at the heart of the Christian faith and so you see in verse one it's a they deny the lord who bought them that is denying something central about jesus life and his ministry denial of the clear teaching at the heart of the christian faith so look bible believing christians differ on how baptism should be carried out and that's okay but it's heresy to deny the need to have our sins washed away by jesus which is what baptism signifies Bible-believing Christians differ on the detail of what exactly is going to happen when Jesus returns, the millennium, the rapture, all that kind of thing. That's okay. But it is heresy to deny that Jesus is going to return, because that's clearly taught throughout the New Testament. There will be false teachers. They will teach destructive heresies. And secondly, verse 2, many will be led astray. As we read, many will follow their depraved conduct. Christianity is not a democracy. We don't determine truth by numbers, thank goodness. Just because a teaching is popular doesn't make it right. It's the Bible that's our authority. It's not mob rule or trendy popularity. Uh, The fourth century theologian Athanasius endured a lifelong struggle against false teachers who denied that Jesus was fully God. And the, the nickname they gave him was Athanasius Contramundum. It's very snappy. It basically it means Athanasius against the world. That was his nickname. Because in his day, most people had been led astray. And most of the church leaders had bought into this idea that Jesus wasn't really God. They'd ignored the clear teaching of the Bible and been led astray by, uh, by the false teaching of a guy called Arius. But Athanasius didn't back down. It didn't matter to him that most of the church leaders were denying the truth. He wasn't going to be swayed from the clear teaching of the Bible. And so if it was Athanasius against the world, then against the world he would be. Because the truth isn't determined by numbers. An idea doesn't become acceptable and true just because it appears in a best-selling Christian book. Or because the teacher who teaches it is endorsed by lots of famous Christian leaders and is wildly popular. You know, I in, in the last 50 years alone, Bishop Robinson's best-selling book denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Best-seller. Steve Chalk's best-seller denied that Jesus bore the punishment for sins on the cross. Joel Osteen's multiple best-sellers deny that faithful Christians can know poverty or long-term sickness. They're best-selling books. But lies don't become truth if enough people believe them or buy them. There will always be serious heresies. There will always be false teachers. Many will be led astray and the consequences will be devastating. Three times we read the word destruction appear. The heresies are destructive, verse one, and they will bring swift destruction on themselves and those who teach them will be destroyed, verse three. Their destruction has not been sleeping. The heresies are destructive because they destroy the faith of people who believe them, who follow them. It ruins their faith in Jesus. And those who teach them will be destructive, will be destroyed. Okay, what do we do with verses 1 to 3? Well, the main thing is you've got to have a functional category for, fel- for false teaching if you're a Christian. Why do I say functional category? because I think if I were to say right now hands up those who think there is such a thing as false teaching I think probably amongst the committed Christians every hand would go up but as preachers we never get more pushback and resistance and criticism than when we address particular books or particular teachers that contain serious errors. The same people who are happy to say yeah yeah there's such a thing as false teaching well they never seem to accept that anything in practice can be false teaching. And so I've had said to me in the past, look, it can't be that bad or they wouldn't sell it in a Christian bookshop. I've had somebody else say, you're bound to disagree with them because you go to a different kind of church. Or she can't be a false teacher. I found her books have really helped me. Look, I take no pleasure at all in talking about false teaching or calling out specific false teachers, my life would be a whole lot easier if I didn't bother. But we have to do it because truth matters. And what you believe will determine how you live and whether you keep trusting in Christ. It matters. Now, what follows in the rest of the passage is, in some ways, rather like this famous picture. Uh, this famous painting by uh, Claude Monet. It's from the Impressionist School, and there ends my artistic knowledge. Now, this is, this is the whole of the picture, and it's very, very beautiful. This is a detail from the picture. I have no idea what those brushstrokes represent. Uh, that could be a dark bit of water in the middle, or it could be a part of a plant, or it could be an alien. I frankly have no idea. It's impossible to tell. You just can't tell... With a sort of impressionist brushstroke, what, what each brushstroke is. But you can tell what the whole thing is when you scroll back to the, the big picture. It's obvious. It's, a, it's the water lilies on the pond in the garden of the bridge by, of Giverny. Everybody can see that. Now, somewhat similarly, actually, what follows in this passage, there are lots of confusing little verses that teach things that, uh, oh gosh, I'm not quite sure what's happening. Uh, There are some complicated things, and there are some things that we find hard to understand. But the big picture actually is very, very clear. And so as we go through, we're not going to, we'll get bogged down if we try and trace the detail of every single verse. We haven't got time to do it either. You're welcome to ask afterwards if you've got questions about specific verses. But the big picture is abundantly clear. There are false teachers. They are a very real danger to your soul, so you need to be on your guard, Right, let's, uh, let's work through the passage then. Um, so verses four to 10, false teachers will be punished by God in the future. What, we'll, what you'll see as we go through is that there are four clauses beginning with the word if, followed by a conclusion in verse nine. Four clauses beginning with if and then a conclusion in verse nine. So verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was destroyed by the depraved conduct of the lawless for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard if this is so then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority The teaching of verses 1 to 3 might make us worry for our own souls and wonder whether God really does care. I mean, false teachers seem to be doing fine. He doesn't seem to do anything about it. Benny Hinn has earned tens of millions of dollars from desperate Christians with fake promises of healing and financial blessing, and he's been going for decades doing it. Age 66, he's still going strong. But the history of the Old Testament shows clearly that God has a perfect track record in in protecting his people and in bringing the wicked to judgment in his good time. The wicked angels, the wicked people of Noah's time, the wicked people of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, God preserved those who turned to him and God brought destruction in his due time on those who were wicked. So do not fear. False teachers will be punished by God in the future. And God's people will be preserved. And in verse 10, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. How very modern the false teachers of Peter's day were. Despise authority and follow the, false teachers, uh, false, follow the desires of the flesh. Or to put it in today's language, don't let the Bible or church restrict your life. You've got to think for yourself. And follow your heart and be true to yourself. Exactly the same things were said then as seem to be said today. False teaching carries on in every generation. You know, in January 2018, this time last year, the World Health Organization produced a report that revealed that one in 10 medications sold in the developing world in poorer countries are counterfeit The practical impact of that is that as many as 169,000 children die from pneumonia alone every year because they've been given false medication. 116,000 die from malaria because the medication they're given is nothing but a placebo. Imagine you, you wake up one morning, you're poor, not in the sort of relative poverty of London where there are lots of richer people, but genuine poverty. And life is a struggle. You wake up one morning to find your child is listless and their head is just hot to touch. They've got a raging fever. Their body is sweating and the signs are all there. The health physicist has explained what to look out for. They've got malaria. You don't know what to do. You do the only thing you can do, though. You sell the few possessions you've got and carry this poor little child to the local hospital. You costs everything that you have to pay for the treatment. But this is your child we're talking about. You're going to do anything. And they're finally given the life-saving treatments. And you sit by their bed with the drip in their arm. But nothing gets better. The vomiting continues. The fever keeps raging higher and higher and higher. Days pass. And instead of getting better, they're, they're getting worse. And the little life ebbs away until they die. And eventually, it emerges that the whole batch of medication that the hospital had bought was fake. Unscrupulous people had made a tidy little packet selling empty drugs. The packaging looked wonderful. It promised to save life, but there was no real medicine there. Now, around the world, that is not a theoretical problem. That's a real live experience. A real death experience. Now, I do not know what the penalties are in many countries for selling fake medication. But I tell you what, it ought not to be a slap on the wrist and oh, don't do that again. It is a wicked, wicked thing to do. To offer hope when there's none. To promise life, knowing all the while that you're delivering death. Just to make a fast buck. Now, God loves people like you and me dearly. His own son died to save you. And it makes him very, very angry. And rightly so when people teach falsehoods and distortions that lead people away from the only source of eternal life, trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that lead them to believe lies. And if we care about people, then we will care about false teaching. And it will make us angry, not indifferent, when we hear about it. False teachers will be punished by God in the future, and that is a good thing. Secondly, second half of verse 10 through to verse 16. False teachers are driven by selfish desire in the present. Now this section looks at the behavior of false teachers, which is really important, because there is always a link between what people teach and how they live. You see that throughout the New Testament. So verse 10, bold and arrogant, they're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They're marked by arrogance and bold pronouncements. I'm not sure precisely what he's referring to at this point, but the the general thing is clear. They're always shooting out opinions on things they don't really understand. So their Twitter feed is is just full of outrageous statements. The sort of thing that gathers a crowd, but will never lead the crowd to truth. And this is not a sign that these are courageous people when everybody else is too afraid to say what's really true. No, it's a sign that they just can't control themselves, verse 12. Verse 12. They're like animals, driven purely by instinct. I love our dog Milo, but he is utterly lacking in reason and utterly driven by instinct. His desire to eat just overrules everything. Every time he scavenges chicken bones from the street, it makes him ill in rather disgusting ways I won't explain on a Sunday morning. But it doesn't matter how ill he gets. The next day he's back trying to scavenge more, just driven by instinct." And that's what these false teachers are like. No matter the damage they cause, they're just incapable of controlling their tongues. They're always up the next day spouting more nonsense. Now, of course, you can fall into the ditch on the other side of the pathway of truth and be cowardly and never speak out if it might be unpopular. But you must beware the supposed Christian leader who's known for their bold pronouncements, but never for thoughtfulness and caution, who's known for shocking, provocative tweets, but never seems to demonstrate restraint and humility and a willingness just to wait until all the facts are in. Now, come to think of it, it's not just beware of Christian leaders like that. I think probably all of us need to learn to watch our own tongues. Verses 13 to 16 move from speech to action. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight, their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. They've left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, some son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey. An animal without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now in chapter 3 verse 14, Peter will encourage us, be blameless and spotless. By contrast, the behaviour of these false teachers makes them blots and blemishes, verse 13. Actually the same words. They're marked again by giving in to desire, acting on instinct, carousing, reveling and adultery. It sounds like sort of Roman orgies, and just, it doesn't really sound like any teachers we hear about these days. But actually, what is being described here is simply giving free rein to desire. Or it, to give it its modern name, the respectable clothes we dress it in today, following your heart and being true to yourself. That's what he's talking about, doing what you want. And in different cultures, that will always look different. As so often, the motivation, verses 14 to 15, is greed. Uh, Balaam, was a, he was a pagan prophet in the book of Numbers and he was hired by the king of Moab to curse God's people and he wanted the significant amount of money that was on offer, so he tried to do so and God had to stop him by making his own donkey speak to him and say, stop. Not a good thing. <laughs> Jesus says again and again in the New Testament, we'll know Christian leaders by their fruit. By their fruit, you'll know them. So lifestyles that are marked by the greedy acquisition of wealth or multiple marriages and sex scandals, that is not a good sign in a supposed Christian leader. Don't follow them. False teachers are driven by a selfish desire in the present. And then thirdly, false teachers cannot offer real freedom from sin. Now he turns from their life to their teaching. What is it that they are actually teaching? And the big thing is they promise a whole heap and deliver a whole heap of nothing. Verse 17, these people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them for they mouth empty, boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Now to follow their teaching, oh, just, it's, it's like being a traveler in a desert who's got lost and is slowly dying from, from thirst. And then they see a well in the distance, a spring. And suddenly uh, strength returns when they were stumbling. They run towards this, this spring rejoicing, just full of excitement, and get, and it's empty. Dust. Nothing. And these teachers, they sound wonderful. The things they say just make people really excited and happy. Oh, oh, you have no idea how much Christian joy I've found and how much uh, better the Christian life is since I started following this guy, since I started reading her books. but actually they offer nothing. Eventually, you realize there is no real life, no real spiritual water on offer. And in particular, they offer that thing we all want, which is freedom, verse 19. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. They promise freedom from sin and guilt They can't really offer it because they're slaves to sin themselves. Sadly, there are sermons being preached today in London and around the world that will promise freedom, freedom from all that religious guilt, freedom from what they'll describe as the narrow, restrictive way of life from a a fundamentalist understanding of the Bible, the freedom to celebrate who you are, the freedom to live out your God-given desires. It's a desperate lie wrapped in a very tasty package. Jesus says true freedom is not the freedom to carry on sinning as you desire. True freedom is freedom from sin. True freedom is the freedom to obey Jesus and found in the obedience that keeps us from sin's destructive power over our lives. These teachers and their message know nothing of the freedom that Jesus really offers. It's a shallow freedom. A short-term freedom. A freedom which really only masks carrying on in the slavery of doing what my heart desperately desires. What Jesus offers is freedom from the power of sin's addictive grip on your life. A freedom from the guilt and the shame that that sin brings. A A freedom from the fear of death and judgment that sin brings us. Knowing that Christ has paid for everything. And Christ has broken the grip of sin. Don't fall for the shallow, attractive promise of a freedom to do what you want. Okay. Look, as we close, um, there are two things to do in response. We've we've covered a, a large chapter, and we've moved fairly quickly. Okay. What are we to do in response? Two things really. Be a lover of truth. And be humble and trust God. The best defense against error is not that you've read every error out there, it's that you know the truth. You don't need to read every heretical book to be safe, to defend yourself, to arm yourself. You need a rich, deep knowledge of the truth of God's word. In Ephesians 6, it is the Bible that is described as the sword of the Spirit with which we cut through the devil's lies. Know the truth. And you'll be well armed. It's worth asking yourself, am I arming myself with the truth? Am I making sure that I I know the Bible better and that I understand doctrine? That's the the summary statements that explain what the what the Bible teaches on a particular thing. Am I trying to make sure I know a little bit more this year than I did last year? So that I'm better armed with God's truth. Know the truth. Be a lover of truth. And then, secondly, be humble and trust in God, because it is easy to think. You know what? uh, I've never really been attracted by heresy. I've been a Christian a long time. I'm just not that bothered. I think I'll be all right. I watched a YouTube video um, a little while ago, strictly for research purposes, you understand. And um, it was this guy in South Africa who'd found come down one morning, as you do, and found a puff adder in the living room, which is not ideal. Um, puff adders are very, very dangerous, venomous snakes. But he knew how to handle snakes. He'd uh, grown up in the bush, although he lived in the, in the city now. And so he decided he was going to catch it himself. So he got his wife to video it, as you do. <laughs> and, uh, but he knew what he was doing. And so he um, you know, put a, a broom handle over the snake's um, head, just behind the, the head, um, picked it up safely held it, showed it to the camera, his wife backing away as he did so. Uh, He was was actually quite skillful, quite impressive. But then he started to show off and play around and sort of got his wife to video him doing all sorts of things with the snake. And he just started to relax and, you know, yeah, yeah, he knew what he was doing. By the time he decided, you know, I'll put the snake in a bucket with a lid on, um, hand it over to the authorities, he was just a bit too relaxed, a bit too careless. After all, nothing had gone wrong and he'd caught this snake and it was all fine. And he didn't put the lid on quite quickly enough and just was that fraction of a second too slow. And he only got a a tiny little nick on his thumb. He didn't get a deep bite, just a nick on his thumb from this snake. you, You sort of see him wince on the video. And, ooh, yeah, I think that's bitten me. The next moment, the video cuts to a week later and he's in hospital on a drip very seriously ill and his hand is the size of a rugby ball and they're discussing whether he's going to lose his arm or not. Just, he knew what he was doing. It's no big deal. Don't be naive. This is a brutal chapter. Either God just likes scaring people for the sake of it or this is a very serious danger and God loves us and wants to make sure that we take the warning seriously. I think it's that. Don't be naive. Don't be naive, but do prayerfully trust in God. Verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Not just how to bring false teachers to judgment, but how to rescue you and me today. Our souls are in great danger, but God doesn't want us to go from here fearful. He wants us to sing the final song, He will hold me fast. Keep turning to his truth, keep holding fast to it, and he will hold you fast. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray we would not be naive, that we would be alive and alert to the danger of false teaching. We would not be foolish enough to think that it, it couldn't happen to me. Please, would we be humble enough to recognize that we too can wander into error? And we pray as a church you would help us to encourage one another, to protect one another, and to drive one another deeper into a knowledge and love of your word so that we might not be led astray and destroyed. And we thank you that in a world where there is false teaching, Where there are wicked dangers and lies, that we have the promise that you can and will keep us safe. Amen.